you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them to James chapter 4? We're continuing our series, Faith That Lives. We're picking up right on the heels of where we left off last week, talking about peace. We hope you have your Bibles. If you, uh, if you do not have your Bible, there should be one right in the back of that pew that's right in front of you. If you would grab that, James chapter 4. Let me ask you a question, if I could, to open up this sermon. How many of you, and if you're not too embarrassed, how about a show of hands, but how many of you have had a conflict, an argument, a quarrel, or some sort of battle in a relationship in the last week? The rest of you are despised. But there is comfort that you are in the minority. Okay. We're going to be talking about conflict. We're going to talk about peacemakers. How do we become a peacemaker? We're going to begin today a mini-series that's right in, encapsulated in the rest of the series that we're going through in James. And I want to open up with this illustration. In many Catholic um, Episcopalian and Lutheran churches, there's a segment, some of you may know this because I think some of you have come from these backgrounds. They have a segment at the beginning of their worship called Passing the Peace. Not totally unlike what we do when we greet, except they're a bit more formal in this. Worshippers shake hands with those around them and they say, peace be with you, while that person then responds, peace with you. The priest, however, of a small New York congregation he introduced the passing of the peace into his congregation, into his church. But listen to this. This is a true story. That congregation found it to be beyond the limits of what they could endure. They could not bear to shake hands and pass peace to those whom they bore lifelong grudges. So their solution, they fired the priest and found a new one sympathetic to their needs. That's a true story. I wish we could laugh and really robustly laugh, but that's a true story. Churches have conflicted because the organist refused to cover her head or because they decided to move from a common communion cup to individual ones. Friends, churches have divided over these types of things. The stories of church strife, the stories of conflict in the church, they could be extreme and commonplace. I think I told you recently we had a, a gentleman a couple of year, few years ago that came in for the weekend. We were looking to hire him as an intern in our student ministry working alongside of me. And while we were together on Saturday, I was letting him know that tomorrow is our annual meeting. It was in November. And I said, you're really going to enjoy our annual meetings. Our congregation is just marked with unity and peace. He came the next day. It was the worst congregational meeting we've ever had. It was three to four hours long. People upset, people standing up, people boldly proclaiming their votes. Um, it was terrible. Uh, needless to say, he didn't ever call me back. <laughs> you know, I thought we had a really good, unified, peaceful church, but churches are filled with discord because churches are filled with people like you and I. Did I say that grammatically correct? Do you know, I have two women in this church 
that are continually correcting my grammar, and I love them dearly, but I think it's you and me, isn't it, Lori, who might be one of them. Every time I say the word I now, I hear Lori, and I love her. Okay, I don't know why I'm saying this. Let's get back to the Word of God. The early church, friends, was not a pretty picture. How many of you have said or heard say, you know what, our churches need to get back to what they used to be like in the first century? Friends, the first century church was filled with discord as well. Their worship was attended by people who were riddled with quarrels and fights in their families. They were riddled with conflicts in their neighborhoods, and they were riddled with battles with their fellow Christians, just like today. See, they had would-be rival teachers. You need to understand this. If you're going to make sense of what James is dealing with and the condition of his churches, people wanted to be teachers because rabbis or teachers were called the great ones. If you were a rabbi in the first century or before, your title, the word rabbi, meant great one. So with a teaching status came a movement up the ladder in their social class. So they had walls between these social classes. They had the rich and the poor. We're going to look at Corinthians when we do our communion this morning. Corinthians had walls between classes, slave and free, rich and poor, men and women. And they sat together in their little factions. And they, they ate together in their little groups. And there was no community between them because people were out for themselves. People were praising God in James' churches at every mention of his name. Whenever God's name was mentioned, the congregation, let's try it, would respond with, Blessed be he, Jehovah. Every time the name of God was mentioned, Blessed be he would be shouted out. But then after leaving their worship, they would slander, they would curse, they would talk about their fellow parishioners on the, on the streets. Because some of their, some of the people in these churches, they didn't have long flowing robes. And they didn't have rings on their fingers, but some of them did. And those who did were given teaching positions and special favoritism and help and attention while those who were poor were getting nothing. The early church needed wisdom. And they needed peace. They needed help. So James wrote this letter to them, inspired by God to guide them through conflict to peace. Friends, this is an introduction to how to become a peacemaker in your life. How to become a church that is a peacemaking church. These truths are so central to what it means to be redemptive that we must proceed carefully and slowly. We're going to look at one verse this morning, and here it is. Open up your Bibles, if you would. James chapter 4, verse 1. Here we go. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, stop right there for just a moment. Do you remember how I've been trying to teach us to interact with the Word of God? James is the master teacher, friends. Questions are interaction vehicles. James asked two rhetorical questions right in a row. Here's the first one again. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, if we skip this verse, and unfortunately, there are too many pastors who just give quick lip service to what is said in this little part of the verse. They go on too quickly. If we skip this, we're going to miss the foundation For how do we solve? Now, listen, you've got to be interested in this. If you're a human being, you must not like conflict. Now, I say that tongue in cheek because there really are some people who come alive in the midst of conflict. I know them. 
They come up in my counseling office often. They're a joy to work with. But if we skip this foundational element, we're not going to understand how to become a peacemaker. You cannot understand peacemaking if you cannot answer this question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Any solution, friends, any solution to conflict that leaves our hearts unchanged. It doesn't matter how good it sounds. It doesn't matter how much research and how many millions of dollars have been brought in and pumped in to these conflict resolution techniques. It doesn't matter how broadly they're applied from Wall Street to church. If they leave our hearts unchanged, they are worldly. Now, some of you are probably interacting with this and saying, Tim, I'm not sure about that. Let's go on. Let's see if, if that's true or not. Worldly wisdom provides band-aids, but not real heart peace. We cannot become peacemakers if we're blind to our own hearts or the hearts of those that we want to guide through conflict. As you should know by now, if you've been here even for three weeks, that the redemptive solution to conflict is this. You ready? Wisdom from God. Bless you. Do you remember the fruit? Do you remember the results of God's wisdom? Friends, we've got to review it a little bit. God's wisdom aims to produce pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, merciful, impartial, and sincere hearts in his children and in his churches. That's the goal. That's the fruit. That's the result of God giving generously and liberally of his wisdom to those who ask. Let's review that just briefly. Remember from last week, verses 17 and 18 from chapter 3. Pure hearts have unmixed devotion to God. They don't have a lot of devotion to God here at church, but then out there Monday through Saturday live for the world. Unmixed devotion is pure wisdom. Peace-loving hearts that pursue right relationship with others as well as with God. That's what God's wisdom produces. Now listen, look back here for just a minute because this is so important that we remember the foundation that we stepped off from last week. God's wisdom produces purity of devotion in our hearts. That's the job. That's the function. That's the task of wisdom. Wisdom's job is not to let you know if you should take this offer or not on this house. That's understanding. Wisdom is God's now the knowledge of God that lives out in our lives through redemptive actions. That's what wisdom is all about. So it produces purity in our hearts. It produces peace-loving in our hearts. So we want peace with one another. When we don't have peace with one another, when we're in conflict with one another, we're supposed to feel bad. We're supposed to feel off-kilter. God's wisdom makes us considerate. Remember what that meant? Willing to give up the right to be right. How, many, how hard that is for any of us in the midst of conflict to say, you know what, I'm willing to give up the right to be right. God's wisdom makes us submissive, which means that we're, we're uh, willing to submit to persuasion and that we're open to reason. How many people that you've seen in the midst of conflict that are open to reason? Wisdom moves us through conflict to the point where we are re ready to submit to persuasion. We are ready to be open to reason. 
This is all what we talked about last week, just by way of review, so we can launch on this mini-series today. Wise people, friends, from verse 17, are full of mercy. Do you remember how we define mercy? Mercy is different than grace. Grace is God's movement that he extends towards those who are in sin to take away their sin. God's mercy is the movement of God to take away the consequences of that sin, the misery that sin causes. So if you and I, if we're going to be filled with mercy, then we're going to be moving with compassionate action. Wisdom does this in us. Wisdom makes us impartial so that we live out what we know to be true in a steady decisive manner and finally god's wisdom makes us sincere so that we're without deceit or hypocrisy you remember that that was all from last week all from last week this is the goal of wisdom this is the fruit of wisdom if you're praying for wisdom god's giving you wisdom this is what you can expect to be produced in your life but the result of wisdom's work is that you and i become verse 18 peacemakers who harvest righteousness, peacemakers, those who are able to take conflict and walk through it redemptively and make peace. See, James's letter was seamless, by the way, and it's surprising to me, and it's not an issue of intelligence, but it surprises me how many people do not realize that James, when he wrote his letter, didn't subdivide it in chapters. It was all one seamless letter so james isn't starting in verse one of chapter four a brand new thought he's running on the heels of what he just taught us in verses 17 and 18 and even prior to that how do we become peacemakers this morning we're going to look at the first insight here it is and this is a mini series we're going to look at part one today the source of conflict the source of conflict You know, let me ask you this. Have you ever, have you ever really thought of why counselors ask so many questions? You know, if you see it on TV, what about Bob? Filthy movie, pretty funny. But if you've seen that movie, the counselor's asking questions. If you go to counseling, your counselor's going to ask questions. If you go to counseling and your counselor doesn't ask questions, it just tells you what's wrong, probably not the best of counseling. Your counselors ask questions why. The usual answer to that is so that they can gather information. That's the typical answer for why counselors ask questions. And you know what? It's a correct answer, but it's not a complete answer. Not only do questions produce information to those who ask, but listen, and here's where we're going with James. Questions direct the one being counseled down inward to their heart. Do you understand that? See, questions aren't only asked for the counselor's benefit. When I ask questions of those who come into my office, I'm asking questions for information, but also to take their vision and drive it down into their heart. That's why God asks questions all through the Bible. Adam and Eve, Cain, Jonah, Paul, Moses, Elijah, It goes on and on, virtually all through Scripture, God asking questions. But God's omniscient. God has all knowledge. 
God has no need to acquire information. He already knows it. So why does God ask questions? Friends, it's not for God's benefit. It's for our benefit. It's for the script, those in the scripture's benefit that they would see what he sees in their hearts. See, James is directing our vision to the heart by asking questions of the source of conflict. Here he asks, what causes, look at it again, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Two rhetorical questions. Don't they come from the, your desires that battle within you? Notice, though, look at your text. Notice what James doesn't write. He does not say what causes some of your fights and quarrels or what is one of your causes one of the causes of your fights and quarrels friends listen this is revolutionary it's unbelievable how many people don't understand this james and the entire scriptures gives one cause for conflict only one and here it is don't they come from your desires that battle within you you see the word fights refers to a battle with weapons. All of us are skilled warriors. How many of you know how to use manipulation? How many of us know how to use nagging? How many of us know how to use anger? How many of us know how to bring up the past? How many of us know how to demean and how to criticize and make weak those around us so that we could be strong and in control? We all have weapons in our tank. The word fights refers to a battle with weapons. It's an armed conflict. This is what arguing and quarreling is. We know how to bring out the big guns. When things are in jeopardy of us getting overturned and not getting what we want, we bring out bigger guns. But the word was used figuratively as a struggle between powers, both earthly and spiritual. So James is talking about this fighting that happens between people between our old nature, as we'll see in a minute, and our new nature, between angels and demons, this fighting, this word captures all of that. But then he uses another word, quarrels. This word refers to fighting, but without weapons. As in personal conflict, civilized argument. See, James is describing a condition where a group has come in the church, a group has come to open war with skirmishes breaking out among the people. Friends, listen, the early church had sides being drawn. They had positions that were dug in and they had divisions and factions and battling and fighting and warring. And all the while, the gospel was supposed to be unleashed to the world. Have you ever been part of or observed a church that seems like it has become a permanent battleground? It doesn't matter how many elders come into a new position. It doesn't matter how many new pastors they get. It doesn't matter how many years go by. Perpetual conflict. Or have you observed a marriage that has managed to somehow stay together for many years, but is one of continual, continual strife and conflict? What I call those marriages are dysfunctionally functional marriages. Somehow they manage to make it work, but they're unhealthy. Historically, God's people have often been guilty of fighting and quarreling. It's a sad history of the church in the midst of the brightness. By the way, Halloween night. How many of you know that that was Reformation Day? 
That was the day that we honored Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses on the walls of the, the door of that church. The day that God's light burst out in the midst of a sick and unhealthy and divisive church. But historically, the church has gone through, the people of God gone through quarreling times. Isaiah 58, 4. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife. What's the purpose of fasting? Fasting is worship. It's intense worship. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife. Can you believe this? And in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Or 1 Corinthians 3, 3, Paul says, you are still worldly. For since there is, he's speaking to the church, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? You see, friends, listen. James doesn't waste time with empty moralism. You know what empty moralism is? When they see two people in conflict, here's empty moralism. Stop fighting and love each other. That's empty moralism. And he doesn't even bother with it. He doesn't bother telling them that these conflicts shouldn't occur. Rather, he is determined. Friends, listen. James is determined to help these churches and to help us understand why they are occurring and later how to move through them to peace. You see, conflict comes from one source. And here it is again. Doesn't your fighting, verse 1, come from your desire for pleasures that battle within you? Friends, this word desires is very interesting. We get our word hedonism from this word. Hedon or hedone is a Greek word. And we get hedonism translated from it. Hedonism is the belief that pleasure is the chief good in life. Hedonism is when pleasure becomes your idol and you surround your life around that idol. That's what hedonism is. Pleasure, ple, no, friend, listen, pleasure and desire are not the problems here. Rather, it's when pleasure or desire becomes the chief drive, the ruling passion in our hearts, that they are a problem and they shatter peace. But friend, you can go to a secular counselor and get what I just told you. The world can tell you what I just said. None of this is unique to James. In fact, the Jewish scholar Philo wrote, is it not because of this passion that relations are broken and this natural goodwill changed into desperate enmity? For the wars famous in tragedy have all flowed from one source, desire, either for money or glory or pleasure. Over these things, the human race goes mad, he said. How about this one from Lucian, the Greek? All the evils, he says, which come upon man, revolutions, wars, stratagems, slaughter, they spring from desire. Or how about Cicero, the Roman orator? He wrote, it is insatiable desires which, which overturn not only individual men, but whole families, and which can even bring down the state. So James is not telling us anything unique. In fact, he's not going to tell you anything unique about peacemaking until next verse. But what he's saying is this, is that where does conflict come from? Where does prop, where do, where do arguing, where does arguing come from? Where do battles come from? They can't come from one source. It's the desires that rage in our hearts. Luke 8, 14 talks about this type of desire. It says the seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked 
by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. Pleasures can choke us and, and keep us in immaturity. How about Titus 3, 3? At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So we could be enslaved by our desires. They can rule over us. Why do we fight, friends? Why do we quarrel? Why are churches so often marked by conflict? Here it is, clear and straight from God's own inspired word. You ready? Listen, we don't fight because the other person's a blockhead. Nobody fights because the other person's a blockhead. Or because our hormones are raging. Or because we're hardwired by our competitive caveman ancestors. We don't fight. These are all the world's answers. You can read them, get online. They're all over the internet. Reasons why we fight. We don't fight because a demon of anger takes up residence. Not even because our fathers used to react to us in the same way. We don't fight because our core needs are not being met. This is all through psychology. We don't fight because we woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Friends, we quarrel, we fight, we war, we have conflict simply and horribly because you and I, we want to satisfy our desires more than we want peace. That's what James, inspired by God, tells us. But Pastor Tim, don't all those other things influence? Certainly they influence. Certainly if you haven't eaten yet anything this morning and you go home and find out that lunch isn't going to be for another two hours and you're emaciated, you're hungry, yeah, you're going to be prone to being irritable. But what is deeper is that your desire to satisfy your hunger is deeper than perhaps your desire to treat your wife with mercy and grace and consideration. I began to see this in myself in a way that was frighteningly clear several years ago. I was taking graduate classes, and I was about three-quarters of the way through my graduate work, and my professor had gotten to the point where he seemed, for whatever reason, to think very highly of me. He was asking me to co-write articles and possibly a book with him. He wanted me to teach some classes at Biblical uh, in his stead. And so I had this, this, um, this expectation from him and, he, and I was in his class, and he gave us a take-home test. Now, his take-home tests were harder than any in-class exam I've ever taken. So I take this exam home. They commonly took about eight hours to complete. I started working on it. The, the, the second I got home, I came home, said hello to Denise and three of the kids that were born at that time. Andrew wasn't born yet. And I head upstairs in my bedroom where I had a recliner. I had a lamp. I had my laptop, and I had the test. I took out the test and I looked at number one. First question. Friends, I had no idea how to answer this question. Absolutely nothing. Usually, you at least have some idea and then you can start dealing with the issue. I had no idea and I started all of a sudden getting that familiar pang of anxiety. And so I said, you know what? I better look down the rest of these questions and see how hard this is going to be. And I looked down the rest of the questions and all but one or two questions, I had no idea how to answer. And now this is raging within me. And I want to tell you, I'm going to give you a glimpse of what the Lord showed me in my life, in my heart. That anxiety was starting to build. And with that fear, which is what anxiety is, anxiety is imagined fear. 
And what I was imagining was, when I bomb this test, my professor is going to see me who I really am, not very intelligent. I don't know how I've had this ruse kept up for so many years, but he's going to really see the truth when he sees how badly I did on this exam. And so that imagined fear began to produce, that imagined anxiety began to produce fear in me, and that fear in me looked for a solution, and the solution was this. You ready? I went down and yelled at the kids because I thought, you know what, if the kids would just be quieter, then I could study better, and if I could study better, I could answer these questions better. But the kids weren't quiet, so then I had to move from the kids to my wife. If she would just wife better. <laughs> if she would mother better. How's that one, Lori? If she would mother better. If she would keep these kids in line and let her husband do what he was meant to do. I finally said, you know what? I can't study here. I'm going to the church. I came to the church for about an hour, made absolutely no headway. I said, I can go home and do this. So I went back home. And now all of a sudden, this fear is just rising up all around me. And all of a sudden, now I was angry at my kids. Then I was angry at my wife. Now I'm angry at my professor. This is thousands of materials, Dr. Monroe. How can you possibly expect anybody to, to answer these questions? But Dr. Monroe wasn't there, so I had to go to the next source. God, why did you let me go into graduate work? I knew I was going to be an idiot. I knew I was going to fail. Why did I even bother starting this? Friends, this is all unfolding, and I'm oblivious. Until all of a sudden, in the moment my anger went to the Lord, the Lord spoke back to me and said, Why are you worshiping you? And at that moment, friends, and this has happened hundreds of times since, as I've gained a better understanding of my own heart, what I'm trying to teach us to do collectively, all of a sudden there was a release. You know what? I don't need to worship me. I make a bad God. And I can worship God. And you know what? No matter what happens, I know I have favor because of Christ. I know that this grade does not equal who I am as a person. And freedom came on the heels of that and apologies and asking for forgiveness to my wife. Do you see how this works? What desire ruled me, friends, in that moment that God opened my eyes to and set me free was the desire for favor, the desire for personal acclaim, the desire for acceptance and approval and fame. All of that was going on, and my wife interrupted that, and my children interrupted that, and Dr. Monroe interrupted that, and God seemed to be interrupting that. And guess what? God was interrupting that to rescue me because I was a slave to my own idolatry. A ruling desire is at the root of every single quarrel and conflict you will ever face in your entire life. The desire for security, the having a large savings account seems to provide for us. The desire for order that a clean house gives. The desire for a promotion at work that we crave. And somebody might ask, might rightly ask me, Pastor Tim, how do you know if you've got a godly desire or an ungodly desire? The answer is simple. Here it is. Ready? When that desire is blocked, how do you respond? When that desire is blocked, how do you respond? The kids mess up the house. Do you respond with anger? An unexpected financial crisis occurs. Do you lash out in blame and fear? 
Someone else gets your promotion. Do you begin to slander and criticize and dislike that person as well as your own boss? The steps are clear. You see, we begin to want something, but the desire begins to dominate. It begins to rule us. It lurks and it moves from the back of our heads to the front. The desire grows. And with it, that compass needle of glory moves from God to us. You see, when I'm looking out for number one and collide with another person looking out for number one, conflict is the result. And it begins to control our behavior. We begin to make choices that we may not have ever made before. And at this point, friends, it is easy to see the desire as more like a need. It's a need. I need that promotion for my children, for college. It's not a need. God doesn't need your promotion to provide. But I need that house in order because God's a God of order. Children, don't you know you want to please God? You pick up your stuff. God's a God of order, but he doesn't have anxiety when the world gets out of whack. How about when you're on Route 78 and you're on your way to an important sales meeting and all of a sudden the traffic comes to a standstill for miles? There's no way you're going to make that meeting and all of a sudden you slap that dashboard. You begin getting angry at those in front of you. Why would that person have to get in an accident on today? Why can't these people clean up these accidents and get me to work? And all of a sudden you're making these uh, excuses that you're going to enact when you make your phone call to let them know you're going to be late. See, all of this stuff is going on in our hearts. And God is allowing it to be squeezed because what comes out of our life by way of actions and speaking is what's in our heart. And God needs to let you see what's there. These desires, James writes, as we're coming to an end, battle within you. Look at that word, battle within you. Battle is a term that means to serve in a military campaign. It means to go to war. When James says battle within you, he means to go to war. But listen, remember, James chapter 3, I taught you this as well. That word body that's there three times means both collectively the body of Christ as well as our own bodies. This word you is the same thing. It means all of us, churches... You, this whole church called Cornerstone, there's battling that's within you. Some people want to do this. Some people want to do that. And when their desires meet your desires and they're not the same, conflict erupts. But James is also referring to the desires of battle within our own individual hearts. Paul captured this. Romans 7, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. You see, our old nature, the flesh in the New Testament, that word flesh, it, with all of its self-seeking desires, battles against our new nature, created in Christ with desires to love others and to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. They collide. And that collision creates conflict. Let's take just a moment and pause for a spiritual sobriety test. I want you to figuratively take your finger, bow your head and close your eyes. And instead of leaning back and touching your nose, I want you to touch your heart. And I want to ask you again, did you have a quarrel this week? Did you have an argument this week? Did you have a conflict this week? 
Maybe it was driving down the road and somebody pulled out in front of you. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your coworkers. Maybe it's your classmates. But did you have an argument and a conflict this week? Can you put your finger on the desire that sprang forth the war? And until we can get to that point to see the desires that result in conflict, you and I, friends, cannot ever become peacemakers. This is why James starts. You want to be a peacemaker? Then what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires of battle within you? Can you see them? Are you aware of them? And what do you do with those desires when you see them? That's what we're going to be working on over the next several weeks. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are moving us without letting up towards becoming a people of wise standing. Lord, people with wisdom, people who sow peace and harvest righteousness. Lord, those who are peacemakers. Lord, I pray that you would help us in this. I pray that you would help my friends to, as well as myself, see our hearts see these battles, these dreams, these expectations, these demands that collide with people who have different ones. Lord, I pray that you would give us the understanding, the wisdom to be able to move through those towards peace. And in Jesus' name, amen.